The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Gayed, publisher of the Lead Lag Report, and joining me for the hour is Mr. Bill Browder, who's uh, got a, a hell of a background, uh, best-selling author, and has a lot to say when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Bill, for those who are not familiar with your background, give us a 30,000-foot view of who you are, how did you get involved in markets, investing in Russia, and what's happened since 2005. So I, I am the grandson of the uh, head of the American Communist Party. Um, he was uh, my grandfather was there between 1932 and 45. And uh, when I was going through my, I was born in 64. When I was going through my teenage rebellion, I decided to become a capitalist. I went to Stanford Business School. I graduated business school in 89, which was the year that the Berlin Wall came down. And I said to myself, if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America, and the Berlin Wall has come down, <clears throat> I'm going to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And, and that's what I set out to do. And I first moved to London and then I moved to Moscow in, in uh, 1996. I set up an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund and it, and it grew to become the largest investment fund in the country with about four and a half billion dollars of assets under management. I, um, then I discovered something really um, maybe not surprising, but pretty shocking, which is that every last dollar of profit was being stolen out of every one of my portfolio companies by these corrupt oligarchs and government officials. And and so I um, I decided to start to challenge that. The way I did that was to research how they did the stealing and then expose it through the uh, Financial Times, and the Wall Street Journal and other publications. And for a while, it had a, had a very positive effect because it was just at the same time that Putin was fighting with the same guys I was fighting with. The oligarchs were stealing power from him as they were stealing money from me. And so he was sort of strangely on my side for the first couple of years of this process. But then he decided to win his war with the oligarchs by arresting the richest guy in the country, uh, a guy named Mikhail Hordakovsky, who was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. He arrests him, he puts him on trial, and he allows the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage on trial. And the other oligarchs came to him and said, what do we have to do so we don't sit in a cage? And, and uh, Putin said 50%. And that was the moment he became the richest man in the world. <clears throat> and that was the moment that my fortunes turned very badly in Russia. I was expelled from the country. My offices were raided. Um, I had a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky who was working for me, and he um, started to investigate why they were going after us. And he discovered that it was all part of a, a very ingenious and corrupt scheme 
where the a bunch of corrupt officials stole $230 million of taxes that we paid to the Russian government. He exposed the theft, um, uh, testified against the officials involved, and then he was subsequently arrested, uh, tortured for 358 days, and killed on November 16, uh, 2009, at the age of 37, a little more than 13 years ago. And since then, I've, I've um, uh, put aside my work as a fund manager, and I've been... Um, for the last 13 years, uh, devoting all of my uh, time, energy, and resources to go after the people who killed Sergei, and, and uh, I think I'm a full-time justice activist, and, and that's led to something called the Magnitsky Act, which was passed in the United States in 2012, which freezes the assets and bans the visas of human rights violators in Russia, and um, Putin really didn't like that at all, and um uh, tried to stop me from doing it elsewhere, tried to repeal the Magnitsky Act in the United States, even sent one of his own guys to, uh, or was actually a woman, he sent a woman to Trump Tower uh, right after Trump was nominated before he was elected. Um, uh, and um, uh, and he, um, uh, uh, anyways, he didn't succeed in repealing the Magnitsky Act, and instead um, he's... Um, uh, and said so we have 36 Magnitsky acts around the world, and it's all it's all going uh, really badly for him. The Magnitsky Act is now the, the piece of the, the template which is being used to sanction the Russian oligarchs uh, and Russian government officials with, uh, responsible for the war in Ukraine. And we really found his Achilles' heel, which is his money. Take us back for a moment to when you're investing in in Russia, because you said that they were basically stealing from you, it became clear over time. I'm just curious, what were, was it, was it uh, blatantly obvious? It was it obfuscated and you had to do a little bit of due diligence to see that there was uh, corruption. What, what was happening in terms of your conclusion there? Well, so let me give you an example. So the biggest company in Russia is a company called Gazprom. I'm sure everyone's heard of Gazprom on this call. Um, Gazprom is, is I think 10 times larger than, Exxon per barrel of hydrocarbon reserves. Um, Gazprom was trading at a 99.7% discount to Exxon um, per barrel hydrocarbon reserves. And the reason everyone thought it was trading so cheaply was because it was, um, there was, uh, everything was being stolen. Um, and the reason everyone thought everything was stolen was that if you looked at the um, income statement of Gazprom, it was a nonprofit company. They didn't make any money. And, um, uh, and so, I mean, so it was sort of obvious on the surface there was something wrong. The problem was, how do you get below the surface to actually figure out who was doing it and what they were doing? And, and this is where something uh, sort of interesting comes in, which is that uh, you think that Russia is really a, a, a sort of opaque place. People can't imagine that it's very transparent. But in fact, it's actually one of the most transparent places in the world for a really strange reason, which is that it's uh, Russia's the most bureaucratic country in the world. There's um, basically every single thing that ever happens in Russia gets written down by some someone and, and then monitored and, and entered into a database for, by some ministry. And no matter how private the information is, these guys working in the ministries are so badly paid that they basically, to survive, they put all the information up for sale. And so if, if you and I were in Russia and I was trying to um, uh, do a little due diligence on you before our meeting... I could get your bank statements. I could get your medical records. I could get your um, uh, travel records. I could figure out who you're calling on your mobile phone. 
And I could do that for, for like a tiny amount of money. And so as a result of this crazy lack of data protection, we were able to really dig deep into what was going on in Gazprom and Sparebank and some of the other big companies out there. And we were able to figure out exactly who was doing the stealing, how they were doing the stealing, where the money was going to, how much was going. And it was really pretty unbelievable. And, and the journalists in Moscow loved me because I was saving each of them like months worth of investigative work because we were doing it for our, for our own purposes. But uh, all they had to do was verify it afterwards. And, and so we were able to really name and shame and expose a lot of these people. If it's, if it's, I hate to say if it's that easy, but if it's in quotes that easy, why isn't uh, why hasn't there been maybe more um, more of a focus around investor protections? We'll talk about the human rights aspect, but yeah, you know, there are a lot of very smart people that invested in Russia prior to Russia going into Ukraine, um, and presumably the dynamics haven't really changed since since then. Well, I mean, I, I, I've ever since I was expelled from the country and I and Sergei Magnitsky was murdered, I've been going around the world trying to convince people that. It's a totally lawless place. And, um, uh, and I would say most people listen to me. I mean, there's not that many people that were investing in Russia. I mean, it's, you know, and it's always this sort of um, uh, kind of, you know, uh, pe- people get attracted by the valuations and, um, and, they wanna, and, they, and they can't really understand that there's a reason. You know, so, sometimes things are cheap and they're cheap for a reason. And in the case of Russia, it was cheap for a very good reason, which is that there's no property rights, there's no rule of law. If someone screws you, which they do all the time, um, you have new, no recourse. And so people can say, well, you know, the economy was growing, or I, I am interested in, you know, oil, or I'm interested in metals and nickel. But none of that stuff matters because <clears throat> there's a big disconnect between the the oil or the the nickel or whatever you're investing in and, and the... Um, profits because the guys who are running these companies have every incentive to steal from you. And there's no disincentive um, against stealing from you. And there's nothing you can do if you catch them. And, um, and so, I mean, it's, it's, and, and by the way, this is not just a Russia thing. I mean, there are people investing in China, probably a lot of people who, who are listening in right now. Um, and, and uh, China is the same thing. If they decide to, to take everything away from you, you have absolutely, there's nothing you can do. And so how do you, how do you handicap that? How do you, how do you factor that into your valuations? And, and, and uh, I know having been in this world for, for many years that most people, when they can't figure out how to do that, they just don't. And they just look at the other stuff and, and, and they, I would imagine that there are people making the wrong valuation decisions because they're not factoring in how much of a discount, uh, all this type of legal risk justifies. Right. And so, so that's what's called more the fiduciary violations. And obviously there's the human rights violations. Um, and as you noted, it's more than just Russia, China as well. Um, and while maybe most people in the U.S. or maybe most companies are not aware of the extent of the corruption that you've exposed in Russia, presumably the U.S. government knows and, and Europe is aware of that, but has turned a blind eye for a number of years. Um I'm curious to hear your thoughts on why is it there hasn't been sort of more uh, more of a sovereign sort of response to Russia pre-Ukraine? Is it just one of those things where uh, bureaucrats in the West got used to commodities coming from Putin and 
let him be? Why is it that we're in a place now where everyone's trying to play catch up? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Well, because Putin was always this really unpredictable character that nobody really wanted to mess with. He was like some kind of crazy guy in the neighborhood who's like, you know, r- running down the street with a knife. And, er- and instead of like confronting him, everyone just wanted to like duck away from him and like, you know, sh- shut their shops and <laughs> lock the door. And so you you ended up having this this sort of combination of things. One is nobody wanted to like have to confront him and deal with him because he was so volatile. And then two, um, he had done a really good job of, of um, softening the ground everywhere by, by literally paying people off. Like in Germany, there was Gerhard Schroeder, the former chancellor who like the minute he stopped being chancellor, he became uh, like a board member of, of the um, pipeline, the gas problems pipeline company. And then went on to like make, you know, not even huge money by Wall Street standards, but like big money by German chancellor standards, you know, a few million dollars or whatever, getting paid by Putin. And, you know, then going back in Germany and softening the ground in his social democratic party. And and then you had all these arrogant guys in America. You had um, basically every every American president. But, wow, I'm so cool. I, I became the president of the United States of America. I'm the best guy there is. Uh, whoever my predecessor was doesn't know how to deal with this guy but because i'm so great and so wonderful i'm going to go and like charm him into doing stuff and putin just laughed at, at these at every american president because they would you know show up thinking you know to have something like a reset or you know some type of uh attempt to calm things down with putin and then you know he, he'd, he'd get end up with a good three to five years of like uh you know no reaction to his bad bad actions um <clears throat> And then, of course, you just had, like in the UK, where I live, there's just so much Russian money sloshing around here. And, and literally, members of, of um, the House of Lords, which is the upper chamber of parliament, were on the payroll, physically on the payroll, getting money, not even ashamed of themselves, you know, softening the ground. And so you, you put all this stuff together, and, and every time Putin did something terrible, he invaded Georgia, nothing happened. He took Crimea, nothing happened. He carpet bombed Syria, nothing happened. And, uh, and so Putin is sitting there thinking, you know, the West is weak. I can do whatever I want. Nothing's going to happen. And and on that point about being on the payroll, I mean, presumably there have got to be all kinds of anti-money laundering type of laws in place. It sounds to me like it's more a, a situation where um, it's either being hidden or just the laws are not being enforced. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the second. The laws are not being enforced. So, so I live in London. Um, I've been screaming bloody murder about Putin for the last – decade and a half. Um, I have the opportunity to like physically visit politicians, law enforcement officials, government regulators on a regular basis with, you know, very well laid out uh, evidence, PowerPoint presentations, criminal complaints. And they've never once acted on anything I've ever presented. And, and I should point out that what I've presented here 
as, as the same kind of evidence I presented in other countries where they have acted. So many other countries have, have um, frozen assets and, and so on and so forth. And in this country, they, re- they never, ever opened a criminal case connected to the money laundering of, uh, from the Sergei Magnitsky murder. And I was feeling all very hard done by until I realized that, that they've never opened a criminal case into money laundering connected to Russia against anybody in 22 years, not a single prosecution. And that's changed like two weeks ago. They, they finally arrested one of the oligarchs for money laundering. Um, but 22 years, not a single case. And, and um, you know, that, that creates a pretty permissive environment. Well, I, I think that, that Russia has pretty much shut itself off from the uh, capital markets for the next three decades. I mean, you know, it, n- nobody is going to go anywhere near Russia for such a long time. I mean, it's, Putin has completely ruined any chance of, of Western foreign direct investment. And China and places like that, they've never been big foreign direct investors um, in places like Russia. And I don't think that they want to risk their, you know, why, why would, what, you know, why would a Chinese company take greater risk than a, a Western company? They're not guaranteed any specific property rights. Uh, so, so I don't think that, um, I don't think Russia is going to, I think that he's really kind of blown it uh, as far as, uh, as far as any kind of foreign investment. I think it really, uh, on the other countries, it really depends on how this, <clears throat> how this conflict plays itself out. You know, if, if Ukraine wins this war, and I think there's, you know, not an insignificant chance that it does. I mean, if you, if you take the current trajectory, Ukraine has expelled Russia out of 54% of the territory that was taken over. Um, I, I think it's entirely possible, probable even, that Ukraine wins this war. If they win the war, um, then I think Ukraine will be a place, you know, Ukraine has gone from a place that nobody really thought about or cared about to, you know, a sort of underdog hero of this whole, of this whole thing. And, and also, you know, a, a country that wasn't much less corrupt than Russia, they've had to become dramatically less corrupt in order to attract all this military and financial aid. And so Ukraine has an opportunity to become a real sort of European type of country in the future with with real investment. And, and I would imagine if the war were to ever end, um, uh, I can imagine there'll be a Marshall Plan or something like that for Ukraine. And I can imagine it will become a place where people may very well want to do business. You mentioned Kazakhstan. You know, Kazakhstan is is um, uh, in a certain way sitting sitting on the other side of Russia um, and totally vulnerable to the same type of nastiness that's been uh, that Russia has Im- imposed on Ukraine. And, and so I, I um, I'd be a little scared of getting involved in Kazakhstan because unlike Ukraine, which is bordering on a number of Western countries, um, Kazakhstan isn't. And so it's not like they're going to get the defense, the Western defense, the way the Ukrainians got if the Russians were ever to turn their their military sights on on Kazakhstan. Well, I, I don't know so much about the um, zero uh, net carbon issues for for Ukraine. It's not something I've looked at. But one thing I would say is that um, Vladimir Putin has done more for the um, green energy movement by invading Ukraine than than anybody could have ever done in any other circumstance um, uh, uh, by, by invading Ukraine, by pushing up the price of, of oil and gas, by restricting the, the supply of gas um, to Europe, it's forced everybody to say, whoa, whoa, <laughs> if we can't get that Russian gas, what are we going to use? And um, 
you know, as far as I'm aware, it takes like 14 months now to get a solar panel in Germany. And, and uh, you know, they're, they're doing everything they can possibly do to find other, other sources of energy. And so, I, I, as I said, I don't know much about Ukraine, but I can say is that this has definitely accelerated the push towards, um, uh, you know, uh, zero carbon uh, uh, in Europe. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Bill, I want to go back to you being that point if Ukraine, in quotes, wins. Um, and I feel like people throw that term wins around a lot without exactly defining it. I mean, you know, you can argue that George Bush thought that he won the Iraq war when he said mission accomplished. And then, you know, many, many years later, you know, that was maybe the quote unquote win. So what is winning for for Putin and for and for Ukraine? Well, so so let's start with Ukraine. It's it's pretty straightforward. If um, if the Ukrainians were to expel Russian forces from their territory, that's winning. How do you define what what territories you want to be you want to have them expelled from? Um, I would argue that there there's the pre February twenty fourth territories, um, which is sort of a solid win, and then um, there is the pre two thousand fourteen territories, which is mainly Crimea. Which is a, a spectacular win, and um, uh, it, it, for what it's worth, it, I believe if if Ukraine were to succeed in the spectacular win of getting rid of of uh, Russia out of Crimea, I think that would lead to Putin's downfall. I don't think that you can be a, a hard man dictator uh, and lose a war in such a humiliating way. Particularly, this is that since that was such such a big sort of trophy for him. And the Russians, they, they can tolerate human rights abuse, they can tolerate economic hardship, but what they can't tolerate is having their strong man um, be a loser. Um, and so that's kind of, that would be, that would be the good win, in, in, my, in my opinion. Well, I, I mean, I think it's more common sense. So, so first of all, I, I, in, in my career, my main career and, um, and my main success came from investing in in emerging markets. And since that career ended and I've been doing other things, um, I still invest because I have my own capital and I don't invest a penny of, of my, of my capital now in emerging markets. It's all in developed markets. And, and it's pretty straightforward, which is that I want to invest in markets in countries where if somebody does something uh, unfair and unjust financially, um, I have a recourse to the courts and to the to you know I have property rights and I can I can um, challenge them in a non-political way to resolve my differences. I mean, in any business situation, the reason why you have contracts and the reason why you have um, laws is because there's an incentive for for people you know people want your capital. You put your capital in and all of a sudden it starts generating returns and there's an incentive for them not to give you those returns. That's just like human nature. People like, you know, once you've taken your risk, they don't want to give you your returns. That's just like how any 
basic person would think. And the reason why you have a rule of law and you have property rights is so that people um, can't do that. And and so from my perspective, what does that mean? I want to go to countries where the, the rule of law is well established, where there's no people just j- bribing judges to make things happen. And and um, and so what does that mean? It means going to European countries, of course, the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, places where, where there's a, a totally functioning court system. And, and um, you know, not every place is 100% perfect, but, you know, I don't want to go to, I, I, you know, in Brazil, you know, all great things could be happening there. But I, I know for sure that, that, you know, a local person can go and bribe a judge. And I don't want to be in, on the other side of that uh, situation if, if I'm getting ripped off. Well, I mean, all sorts of people do things for for different reasons. So, you know, there's many, many fund managers or fund management companies that say, you know, we're offering our our China fund because we have demand from our clients to invest in China. And so there's, you know, they're they're sort of, you know, saying it's demand driven. And so it's not their fault if China were to like expropriate it all. And and I would imagine there are people who said the same thing about their Russian funds. Um, uh, I, I can't imagine that there are many uh, fund management groups that are um, investing in China or other dodgy places because they felt like they had to be there um, from the government of that country. I think it's more um, either they're just doing it, they're just allocating capital to these countries um, because there's they have clients that want to do that, or or they think it's just profitable to do and they want to you know have a have a vehicle to um, to send their way. Um, I, I think I think it's. Um, but but I I think that that people don't really um, the regular person doesn't really understand how how dodgy a lot of these places are. You know, you go to Indonesia, you go to Brazil, you go to Egypt. You're just not going to get treated fairly, and um, it doesn't matter what the economic growth is in, in these places. So so you know the, the the big the big end game question is is really the crucial one, which is what what is Putin trying to achieve? And in in my opinion. Um, uh, and this is different than other people's opinions. Uh, I, I think the main reason he's at war in Ukraine is not because of NATO or, you know, NATO enlargement or some vision of a grand uh, Russian empire. I think the simple reason why he's in Ukraine is that he and, and about a thousand people around him have stolen so much money since he became president. And I'm talking about like a trillion dollars of of state money has been stolen by these thousand people. That he's just terrified that one day there'll be people with pitchforks on Red Square because you just can't steal that kind of money from the people and have them put up with it, particularly after 22 years. And so, what do you do if you're a dictator and you're you're worried about your people rising up? Um, uh, you create a foreign enemy. You start a war. You know, straight out of Machiavelli. You know, Machiavelli 101. You start a war, and I, that's what I believe the war in Ukraine is about. And so. If you if if you believe my logic is correct, then then his end game is just being at war, which is really an important conclusion because in, first of all it means that there's no real negotiated settlement. You can't. Uh, uh, there's nothing he can he can really get from a negotiation that would satisfy him, um, and and for what it's worth, he never negotiates anyway. And so. There, that that means there's only two outcomes to this thing. If you can't if the, if you can't negotiate a settlement, then either Russia wins um, or Ukraine wins. And if Russia wins, uh, coming back to Michael's original question, what is how do you define winning? If Russia wins, and let's say <clears throat> Ukraine 
you know, surrenders to Russia, that's not the end of the problem. Putin still needs to be at war. And so what does he do next? Well, he, he then shows up at the Estonian border. And when he's at the Estonian border, um, then we have a, just the worst possible choice anyone could ever have, which is either we, the United States, UK, EU, go to, go to war with Russia, um, which is horrific and unimaginable. Or equally horrific and unimaginable is that we don't go to war with Russia because uh, we would then be abandoning our NATO ally, uh, Ukraine, uh, uh, Estonia. And if and if we're abandoning a NATO ally, then it means NATO no longer works. Then Putin can just go pick off all sorts of people all over the place, and and we're back into like you know 1939 Europe. And so it leads us back to the other option, which is Ukraine winning the war. And Ukraine has been winning the war, but the 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 level of support from the United States and, and other countries has been strong. But it hasn't been strong enough. They've, uh, the United States has has very very thoughtfully um, and purposefully given the Ukrainians enough weaponry not to lose the war, but they very specifically haven't given the Ukrainians enough weaponry to win the war. And we have to do that because if we don't do that, um, then then this thing just drags on. And one of my big fears, if it drags on, is that eventually time is on Putin's side. He doesn't have a democracy. He doesn't. His, he doesn't care what his people think. But in all of our democracies, the United States and Europe and UK, people are tired of paying high gas prices and inflation and all this kind of stuff. And and um, enough time passes, and you'll end up with some kind of populist leader that says, you know, I'm going to come in there and stop all this stuff. And and uh, and if if the Ukrainians don't get the Western military and financial support, they will lose. And so it's a it's a tenuous dicey situation could go either way and depends how long it lasts. And I would add, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen more and more of that sentiment, people saying, you know, we're dealing with high inflation and we're, we're borrowing money to give it to Ukraine. You never really had that in, at the start of the year, right? But you do have, I think, at, at the fringe, more and more people expressing that whether you think it's right or wrong, it is it is starting to get into the conversation. Yeah, very much so. I mean, look, look and, and you have these, you have, um, uh, uh, Orban of Hungary vetoed $18 billion financial aid package from the EU, which and it requires unanimity at the EU last week. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, you know, not another penny for Ukraine. And if you have, uh, uh, I, I, I would argue, um, Russian paid for demonstrations in Germany, no more sanctions. It, all, all sorts of stuff is kind of, you know, filtering in there. And, and the longer it goes on for, the more that happens. Um, and and it, by the way, it's not an unreasonable thing just to say, you know, how much more money do we have to spend? And I actually do have a solution to this whole conundrum, which is very simple, which is that at the start of the war, um, Russian central, the Western governments froze $350 billion of Russian central bank reserves. And so there's the easy place to get the money to pay for Ukraine so we don't have to dig into our pockets, and that's just let Russia pay for it. That's one of the things I'm I'm, uh, advocating for in different... um, parliaments and governments around the world right now is, is, you know, we, we don't have to send our money to Ukraine. <laughs> Let the Russians pay for it. They, 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 you know, they broke it. They've got to fix it. Well, it, it kind of feels to me like, um, we, we've, we, we have pushed our capacity, um, as far as it can be pushed at the moment, um, which is not good enough, by the way, I, I don't, I don't agree with this. I think that 
you know, there's only 40 oligarchs sanctioned. There's 118 of them on the Forbes list. Um, as you mentioned, there's a bunch of banks that are still not sanctioned. And Russia still sells a billion dollars a day, or it did, I, I should say, as of two weeks ago, a billion dollars a day of oil and gas to the West. And that's about the amount of money they spend every day killing Ukrainians. And so it's, it's you know, the West doesn't really have, it kind of feels like to me like the West has sort of done as much as, 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 as we would expect it to under the current circumstances, um, which is not good. But, but here's, here's what I've learned in my own fights with Putin over the last 13 years is that whenever we think we've sort of run out of momentum in, in my own campaign, for example, Putin would just do something so outrageous that everybody who had, was starting to drift away from me would all of a sudden come right back to me. And that's where we ended up getting Magnitsky acts in 35 countries around the world. And I think the same is true with this war. Every time we think that people are growing tired of it, they're getting upset about, um, you know, high prices and, and freezing and all this kind of stuff. Putin does something worse and worse, and everyone watches it on their television screens. And and uh, and and then he kind of gives us a shot in the arm to like behave ourselves and you know draw closer and shut down more loopholes. And like for example, I think it was about ten days ago, um, we the, the European Union finally um, and the West actually not just the European Union, the G7 um, uh, put this price cap on Russian oil. The price cap was at $60, and it said that basically any boat that moved Russian oil um, uh, that was being sold for more than $60 couldn't be insured and all sorts of other sanctions, et cetera. And so um, that's a way of cutting off some of Russia's financial flows for for this type of thing. Um, there's actually one other thing I should just throw into the conversation here, which um, and, and since this is a conversation with people involved in the markets, you'll probably be more appreciative of this than most. And that is that there's one thing that will happen, in my opinion, um, regardless of what any government does to try to counter Putin. And that's simply that as interest rates continue to rise in order to fight inflation, um, we're, we're already starting to see economic slowdown. And I suspect we'll see even further economic slowdown. And what happens when you have a recession? Um, well, one of the things that happens is the price of oil goes down. And so, you know, oil, oil is sort of bobbing around sort of low 70s. But I can imagine a scenario where oil is, you know, a lot lower than it is right now. And if that happens, that is Putin's lifeline. He doesn't got any, he has nothing else, really. He can't borrow money from anywhere. His central bank reserves are frozen. Um, his, his cost of extraction is pretty high. Um, and he's got a bunch of other stuff in addition to the war that he's got to pay for. And so, Putin really would be on the ropes if oil prices were to drop to, say, $45. And I think it's entirely plausible and possible, maybe even probable, if the, that if that, uh, you know, the, the, the um, uh, results of, of the recession that, that I think we're probably going into may very well lead to that. And, um, and that could be the single biggest determinant of, of how this war ends up playing itself out. And for what it's worth, that was the that was the determinant of what led to the breakup of the Soviet Union. Oil prices were between ten and twenty dollars, and they just couldn't afford to do it anymore. Um, well, so so America starts invading Canada and then raping uh, Canadian women and and um, castrating um, 
Canadian soldiers and, and taking Canadian babies and, and sending them off to California and destroying, destroying Canadian um, energy infrastructure. So they froze up there in Canada and to um, make sure all the wheat that Canada exports to Africa and Latin America gets um, curtailed at the ports. Um, I, I don't think so. No, <laughs> I don't think Look. so. Well, I, I mean, if, if that was the real concern of Putin's, which it isn't, then um, why is he not uh, launching a war on Finland and Sweden right now? I think it's just a total red herring, this whole NATO thing. That's his, that's his argument. That's how he presents it to the world. He doesn't care about NATO. He just wants to put so – he needs some argument in order to be at war. But, I mean, let's face it. If this was such a critical thing, then why hasn't he what, – what, you know, why is Sweden sitting, there, sitting pretty right now? Sweden has just joined NATO. The, uh, I'm curious, Bill. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've still got a lot of connections and relationships in in Russia. Um, what's the mood on on the ground uh, with with citizens, with those that we're probably not hearing too much about in in the Western media side of things? The mood is very, very, <clears throat> very grim. People are very unhappy with what's happening on the ground. Their their life, their livelihoods, their safety has all been compromised because of this this whole thing. But there's one thing that's really crucial for everyone to understand is that Russia is like the most horrifying, unfair country in the world. Nobody believes in Russia that they they have any impact over their surroundings. And so just to give you a sort of like a real life example, if if you were to visit somebody in Moscow and they have, they're wealthy, you could go to their apartment and, and it would be the most beautiful apartment with like unbelievable wood or marble floors and arts and uh, amazing decoration and just great stuff. And then the minute you walk out into the vestibule of their apartment building, it smells like urine. And and because everybody is just so individualistic in Russia and they have, there's no sense of common, uh, of common concern that nobody, <clears throat> nobody is interested in, even in their own apartment buildings, like cooperating with their neighbors to keep like the stairwells clean. And, and this permeates every aspect of society. So everybody is just like every man for himself. You know, instead of, you know, when this war started, <clears throat> most people didn't care. And then all of a sudden they start drafting uh, men between the ages of 18 and 60 and something like 700,000 men flee the country. Um, uh, if those 700,000 men had like marched on Red Square, that would be the end of this war. But instead they fled the country because they're just they're only looking out for their own narrow personal interests. And, and, and so everyone's like really unhappy there. It's just like, how can you be happy when? When you know you can no longer use your Mastercard, you can no longer watch Netflix, you can no longer buy a Western car, you can no longer have an Apple phone. You're you know unemployment, just all sorts of nastiness happening there. Um, and there's nothing you can do or say about it. And if you want, and and by the way, good chance that you're going to get uh, you know rounded up in a press gang and sent off to be cannon fodder on the front. Uh, n- nobody wants to be involved in that. I mean, just to give you an example, a friend of mine, uh, uh, an American journalist friend of mine was in Moscow recently. And he told me that the restaurants that we used to go to, there are only women there, no men. The men can't show their faces because they're afraid they'll be drafted. What, what kind of country is that? Well, I mean, I, I have some, my, my feeling is that, that it's really, it's very, very difficult um, for uh, an authoritarian regime to have a sustainable long-term, um, model that works for one simple reason that, you know, in, in democracies, you have all these 
um, uh, self-correcting mechanisms. If somebody does something stupid who's running the country, you vote them out, and then you bring in somebody with a better idea. Um, and in China, you know, you, you, there, there, there has been a period of time when they, they could sort of use their authoritarian model and say, look, you know, all this fractiousness of a democracy is, is such a, so inconvenient, and we can really grow our economy. And they did that for a while, and, and, and the deal they had with the Chinese people was, you know, just you know, enjoy the fruits of, of a good economy and, and don't make a fuss about any of this politics. And, and that kind of worked. But this new guy, Xi Jinping, is, is uh, you know, he's kind of deviating from that, that whole thing. And he's saying, you know, I, I, um, you know, let's lock our country down so that nobody can move, you know, for six months or three months or whatever, and have zero COVID or, or you know, we're going to shut down this tech company or that tech, tech company because they're becoming too powerful. And it all, all of a sudden becomes their, their objective is no longer economic and they start doing arbitrary things. And, and, um, as, as this type of stuff goes on, there's no check. There's no balance. There's nobody to say, you know what? That's stupid. You know, you look, you messed up <laughs> time for you to go. We want somebody else. And, and the, the, that kind of, um, scenario I think is, is an extremely bad one for the future of China. I mean, for, for, for what it's worth, I, uh, I'm uh, I'm 58 years old. I w- when I was in business school, I was 25, and at the time I was in business school, Japan was like the every, it was the, the Japanese stock market was trading at like 60 times PE. Uh, everything about Japan was the best thing in the world, and everyone said, "Look at Japan! Japan is just the best, best, best." We all studied Jap- Japanese companies, and then like a couple years later, the you know Japanese stock market crashed, the real estate market crashed, and they've been in a state of sort of economic sort of desperation ever since. And nobody is saying, wow, let, let's like model ourselves on Japan. I, I can't imagine that we're not going to see something very similar with China where, you know, w- w- their best time is behind them, not, not in front of them. Well, you know, um, so Putin, uh, uh, he held off on invading Ukraine. Uh, the timing was totally dependent on, on uh, China. Xi Jinping was doing his uh, Olympics and Putin you know, wanted to be deferential. Um, and he said, okay, well, I'm not going to do this, this, um, invasion until after your Olympics. And when he went to China to visit him at the Olympics and he, he, um, he told him that this is going to be great. When you're done with your Olympics, we're going to invade Ukraine and it's going to be a total and absolute humiliation for the United States and all these, um, democracies that are giving us such a hard time. And, you know, she was saying, "Great, you know, that's uh, excellent. Let, let, let's humiliate them, and it'll be a three-day war, and it's going to be just great for all of these dictatorships." And so Putin does his invasion, and totally miscalculates everything, and it's not a three-day war, but it's a now a ten-month war, and um, and what what happens during the war? Um, oil prices go up, and gas prices go up, and food prices go up, and and China is a country which is importing all this stuff. And even if they get a discount on the, whatever they buy from Russia, that discount is a discount off of a higher price. And so this isn't helping him at all. And, and uh, you know, I remember when, when everybody said, well, once MasterCard and Visa are kicked out, Alipay will take over. Well, you know, Alipay doesn't want to be on the U.S. sanctions list. When Apple phones stopped being sold there, then they thought the Chinese would start selling their phones. But you know, the, the, look at what happened to Huawei. No one else wants to be in that in that position. 
And so it's not like the Chinese. I think the trade has gone down with China other than, than oil. And, um, and so China, you know, this is not working out at all well for China. And then and, and India is another, is, is, is another story. India India um, uh, is a democracy. You know, if and and the Indians aren't aren't are they're not looking at Russia and saying, "Wow, we like these savages," um, you know, raping Ukrainian women. They don't like that at all. And so, you know, in, India can can try to play the neutral card only up to a point. And so, you've got uh, you, know, you know, Russia really doesn't have any big friends in the world. And and you know, as they started running out of ammunition, uh, where are they getting their ammunition from? North Korea and Iran. Nobody else wants to supply them with any military aid because nobody else wants to be on on the you know U.S. shit list. And, and, and that, that is, um, you know, so Russia really is not getting what they want from China. The only thing they're getting from China right now is a little bit of diplomatic support at the United Nations. But beyond that, it's really pretty, pretty, pretty mild. Well, I mean, I think at, at, at this point, um, uh, everybody is starting to, um, <laughs> spend more money on their, uh, military, uh, budgets. I mean, it's, um, all of a sudden I, I think in the past, you know, this was Trump's big thing was like, why are we paying 3% of GDP and no one else is other than like one or two countries? And and uh, the reason is everybody was like, you know, it's kind of like, why spend money if if, um, if everything is going so calmly? And, uh, you know, it, I, I can remember when the Cold War ended, uh, there was this, this big concept is called the peace dividend, which is you don't have to spend any money on military, which is doesn't have the same multiplier as spending money on like something else. And so we all, we've all been this great beneficiary of this peace dividend. Um, and nobody really wanted to cut that off, but now all of a sudden people are saying, you know, Oh my God, if you're, you know, you're sitting in Poland or Germany and you're th thinking, God, you know, we could end up becoming, you know, part of Russia if we don't defend ourselves. And so we got to spend a lot more money on, on, uh, on our military, you know, on, on our NATO commitments and on our, on our military budget. I mean, I heard a really interesting statistic. <clears throat> um, so the UK, where I live, it's a country of about 70 million people, and I think there's somewhere between 50 and 100,000 soldiers in total. And then you've got um, Finland, and I, I can't remember the population. I think it's like 7 million. But because they're on Russia's border and they've had such trouble over a long period of time, there's 250,000 people that, that could be called up, reservists called up in a military confrontation. And so, you know, I think everybody's kind of waking up now to saying, you know, it's life is not so uh, joyous and simple as it was before when you have countries like Russia, you know, invading their neighbors and threatening everybody. Well, so it's a really good question and, and one which needs to be addressed. And so, so um, uh, first of all, I, I believe that Putin has sort of redefined um, criminality, state criminality in a way that we haven't seen since the Second World War. He's really, I mean, what he's done uh, is truly monumentally changed the goalposts in terms of crime. And so he's now sort of standing behind sovereign immunity. That The thing that protects the central bank reserves is, is, a, is a concept of sovereign immunity, which means states' money can't be touched. Like you can't touch an embassy and you can't touch country's central bank reserves. But I would argue that this is very similar to the way in which the mafia used to behave in the United States, that, that they would... They would run circles around law enforcement um, using all sorts of tactics and tricks and so on. And eventually they had to adjust the laws in the West, in the United States, to deal with mafia. And they came up with something called the RICO law, 
I'm, I'm sure you've all heard of it, ra- racketeering and, and influence corrupt organizations. And, and the RICO law allowed this, the, the, uh, it basically got rid of these things, all these different loopholes that the mafia was hiding behind, and they were able to execute many, many mafia prosecutions. And I would argue that, that international law needs to be adjusted now to uh, uh, basically adjust to how Putin is behaving. Which doesn't mean you, you get rid of sovereign immunity in its entirety. You say that if a country um, commits an act of aggression and the act of aggression is is recognized by a certain um, you know proportion of of countries or members of the United Nations or however you want to define it, um, then in in uh, then in specific instances that that you can then um, take money that they have and use it for reparations. And by the way, reparations are are, are absolutely nothing new. After the Second World War, all Private property and government property from Germany was expropriated to pay for the rebuilding of the country, and so it's not a it's not an unheard of concept. And um, and by the way, the one unexpected consequences consequence which would be pretty satisfying is that who's the other country that has so so much um, uh, central bank reserves in the West? Um, that's China, and so perhaps China will be a little bit more reluctant. To um, invade Taiwan or do other some other horrible thing, if they see that all their central bank reserves could be frozen, and some people say, well, you know, then people aren't going to keep central bank reserves in the West. Well, that that may be true if just the United States did this, but if the United States, the European Union, Canada, Australia, Japan, uh, UK were to do this, uh, and Switzerland, where where else uh, are countries going to keep their current account surplus and their reserves? And so I think that this we, we have some leverage here and we should use it and certainly should we should use it for Ukraine. I think that's a uh, good place to end the space, given that we're at the top of the hour here. Again, everybody, please make sure you follow Bill Browder on Twitter. Check out his uh, books as well on Amazon. Bill, any um, any kind of final thoughts or anything else that, that you think people should be focusing on before we wrap up? Um, I, I think it's good. We had a great conversation. I, I've got to I've got to run on to something else right this second, but I really appreciate all the questions and all the good uh, thoughts. And and uh, thanks for uh, organizing this, Michael. Cheers, everybody. Thank you. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.